Our brains are wired from experience. We are not born hardwired. Reptiles are born hardwired and they run away as soon as they hatch from their shells and they already know how to meet their survival needs, but they do it in a pre-wired way. So we primates are born with a lot more neurons, but no connections between them. So our early experience on how to meet our needs builds the neural pathways that turn on the reward chemicals and the neural pathways that link our good feelings to specific actions. Welcome to the Art of Humanity. I'm your host, Jessica Ann. This is my podcast where you can listen for fresh perspectives with artists, leaders, authors, and your favorite entrepreneurs. You can explore creativity and consciousness, evolve your business with the art of humanity. Now, here's this week's episode. Hey guys, thank you so much for listening, as always, to the show. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Here's the thing. I personally haven't consumed audiobooks up until recently because I preferred to use my Kindle. But audiobooks are now my main way to consume content. As listeners and readers of my book, Humanize Your Brand, know, I try to live a life of a minimalist, and I don't necessarily need or want more books. I like experiencing the brilliant insights of a book minus the hard copy. Well, if you're like me and love audiobooks, Audible is offering Art of Humanity listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to www.audibletrial.com slash artofhumanity and browse the selection of audio programs. You can download a title and start listening. It's really that easy. I love listening to audiobooks before bed. And the best part is that you can listen to audiobooks when you have Wi-Fi turned off, whether it's on a plane or right before bed and you don't want to be stimulated by social media, you can listen to an audiobook. I turn on airplane mode, put my eye mask on and drift off to stories. Thank you so much to everyone who's reached out to give me feedback about my podcast. Mark Bentley from Australia wrote to me. He says, I discovered your podcast through Richard Rudd when you interviewed him on the Gene Keys, then just finished listening to your podcast with Michelle Mazur, which was spot on for my day to day. Wanted to give you feedback and say that I love your voice, which is very easy to listen to, the intro outro music, which is very groovy, and love your message. So thank you. Thank you, Mark Bentley in Australia. If you enjoy this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Please leave a review on the iTunes store or visit artofhumanity.io to contact me. You can also shoot me an email at hello at jessicaannmedia.com or find me on social media at it's jessicaann. That starts with an I. It's I-T-S-J-E-S-S-I-C-A-N-N. This is episode 37 of The Art of Humanity. Season four focuses on creativity. The upshot is that I get to share my process. Adi Ashanti has said, enlightenment is a destructive process. It has nothing to do with becoming better or being happier. Enlightenment is the crumbling away of untruth. It's seeing through the facade of pretense. It's the complete eradication of everything we imagine to be true. Ever since I was little, I loathed the adults telling me how to feel, especially around the holidays. My intuition told me that something was off and I couldn't figure out why. Now, as an adult myself, at least I can peel back the layers to find out what my intuition has been telling me all along. As I examine the underbelly of our culture, spelt C-U-L-T-U-R-E, and discover how and why we're programmed, I really feel alive and pure. In my last interview, I talked with Michelle Mazur, who was my speaking coach. 
Some of you may know that I stood on the stage at Google to deliver a keynote. While that world of speaking and hustling and grinding was so helpful for my personal and professional growth, I've since put speaking on the back burner. Well, except for this podcast. As I fuse the worlds of spirituality, philosophy, and the school of hard knocks, I continue to follow my intuition. My intuition allows me to pierce through the static to reveal the disillusionment in my quest for deeper meanings. Patti Smith has said, the artist seeks contact with his intuitive sense of the gods, but in order to create his work, he cannot stay in the seductive and incorporeal realm. He must return to the material worlds in order to do his work. It's the artist's responsibility to balance mystical communication and the labor of creation. If you listen to episode 35 with Richard Rudd, we discuss his book, The Gene Keys. And as I dive into this work further, there's a whole new world out there that's just waiting for us to explore. If we intersect Richard Rudd's work with the new science of epigenetics, we can really access higher consciousness. What is epigenetics? You're probably wondering. Epigenetics is the study of cellular and physiological traits, or the external and environmental factors, that turn our genes on and off, and in turn define how our cells actually read those genes. It works to see the true potential of the human mind and the cells in our body. So when we intersect the science of epigenetics with the belief that Richard Rudd and I discuss in episode 35, that poetry is a portal into different states of consciousness, we can literally evolve our genes. That's why I'm so passionate about my work in the world. I create content around true spirituality, letting go, and how to remove the obstacles to higher consciousness. We're currently experiencing a huge shift in our consciousness. We can evolve our genes merely through words, which communicate beliefs. Now, if this idea is too radical for you, I totally get it. It's not for everyone. And I'm exploring the spectrums of beliefs through another system that I love called Spiral Dynamics. I'm aware that my beliefs are not always aligned with everyone, and I'm totally okay with this. My intention here on this podcast, The Art of Humanity, is to share my insights with purity through experiential living, through art and connection, which is why I feel like it's so important to balance out my episodes with people who are not okay with the status quo. My guest today is Dr. Loretta Bruning. Loretta was not convinced by prevailing theories of human motivation. Then she learned about the brain chemistry we share with earlier mammals, and everything made sense. So she began creating resources to help people manage their inner mammal. Her work has helped thousands of people rewire themselves for more happy chemicals. I'm so excited about today's guest. Let's go to the show. Today I'm talking with Loretta Bruning, PhD. She is the founder of the Inner Mammal Institute. She is the author of many books, the most popular book being Habits of a Happy Brain, Retrain Your Brain to Boost Your Serotonin, Dopamine, Oxytocin, and Endorphin Levels. She's Professor Emerita of Management at California State University, East Bay. Her work has been featured in so many places, some of which include Forbes, NPR, Fox, The Wall Street Journal, NBC, Fast Company, Dr. Oz, and Real Simple. She has been interviewed on a large number of podcasts, including James Altucher, who I've also interviewed on my podcast on episode 11, Brainfluence, Recovery Unscripted, Yoga Body, and she's spoken at International Coach Federation, the Latin American Positive Psychology Network, the Relational Center, and Imagery International. Her books have even been translated into Spanish, Russian, Chinese, Arabic, French, and Turkish. She holds a BS from Cornell University and a PhD from Tufts University. Loretta, thank you so much for joining me on The Art of Humanity. 
Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. So, Loretta, you study the chemicals in the brain, and you teach people how to rewire the chemicals in their brains. So I'm going to ask you a question that I like to ask all of my guests to kind of understand the motivations behind what they do. What made you decide to get into doing this type of research and writing all these cool books that you've written and and doing this work in the world? Well, first, I want to be perfectly honest that I'm not saying that I do my own empirical research. So I have connected the dots between research done by others in the past sort of 50 years. It's not even the latest research. In fact, it's research that has been neglected because of the romanticized view of life that people have today, and specifically the romanticized view of animals, because our animal brain controls our brain chemicals. And it was really as a parent and watching my children grow and seeing that just being nice, I call it nicism, that just being nice to kids, students all the time doesn't make them nice. In fact, it can have the opposite effect. And I was so amazed when I read The Dog Whisperer, writing about neurotic dogs that everyone's probably heard of. These dogs are constantly rewarded and fussed over and indulged. And not only are they wrecking the lives of those around them, but they wreck their own lives. They're miserable. So that's why I was so interested in really understanding uh, primal responses. Wait, okay, so let's unpack that a bit. You got into this work because you started exploring neuroticism in dogs? <laughs> well, I got into it because I was a parent and I was... First, I was a college professor and my students were not especially motivated. And then I saw that my children were not especially motivated. And then I was shocked to see that the children of other social science professors was not motivated. That really got me going because social science tells other people how the world should raise children and yet their own children are often washing out. And they, of course, blame the world for this. But when I started doing my own research, it was so easy to see that our brains evolved for, just in the interest of time, let's say foraging. Animals don't have refrigerators, so they have to constantly look for food. And if they say, well, the, the distribution of fruit in this forest is so unfair, then they'll just starve to death. So they have to put one foot in front of another and get the fruit. And that's the job our brain evolved to do. And that's what makes you happy because our happy chemicals evolved to stimulate action toward rewards. And if you get the reward without action, you don't get the happy chemicals. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. I'm going to go back to the dog whisperer and the dog answer again, because <laughs> yeah. I'm a dog person. I have a 10-pound okay. miniature dachshund. <laughs> when you're studying the fact that when you baby dogs or you treat them as babies and, and you do the work for them, they become neurotic. And then you can't really yes. allow them to be the wild animals that they are. Where's the balance in that today? Because a lot of these dogs are domesticated. And I know you're not a dog whisperer, but <laughs> I'm just curious yeah, about the yeah. study of animals and yeah. stuff. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I focused more on primate research, monkeys and chimps. And I'll give you like a mind-blowing story that I just saw. There's a new movie called Jane that um, perhaps people have seen where Jane Goodall's early years among chimps in the 70s and 80s, even 60s, were 
recorded and in the vault at National Geographic. And now they're taken out and you could see this up close. So what happens, and she doesn't really address it, even though she shows it. Jane Goodall, in order to initiate animal research, which she did a good job at, but she did it by feeding the animals. And today we know that feeding wild animals is not healthy. They lose their ability to feed themselves. And so what happened, it was so depressing when you see it, it's like you shake. So here was a mother and a child. It was like the first child that she saw it being born and she lived with it growing up. And because these chimps had just been given mega quantities of bananas, which bananas is like a candy bar for chimps because so much of their diet is green leaves. Mm. A huge reward that they're getting with no investment of effort. So the young chimp that she had raised or watched growing up, that chimp had no awareness of how to meet its own survival needs. So when he was all grown up, he still wanted to be breastfed. And he was like punching his mother when she resisted. And so finally she dies. And so he just curls up in a ball and three weeks later he dies. The simple thing is our brains are wired from experience. We are not born hardwired. Reptiles are born hardwired and they run away as soon as they hatch from their shells and they already know how to meet their survival needs, but they do it in a pre-wired way. So we primates are born with a lot more neurons, but no connections between them. So our early experience on how to meet our needs builds the neural pathways that turn on both the action and the reward chemicals. Well, I mean, it turns on the reward chemicals and the neural pathways that link our good feelings to specific actions. Mm, okay. So there's a lot going on behind the scenes. Yeah. There, there are a <laughs> lot of chemicals that are firing in our brains that we don't even know about. Can you give us a brief summary of all of these chemicals and how they work? Sure. Well, I'm not going to respond to the all part because some people say 100, 200. So I have admittedly narrowed down to what I call the happy chemicals. They're the reward chemicals. They reward you with a good feeling when you take a specific survival step. And we could talk more about other chemicals, but the four that I focused on are dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, and endorphin. Now, each of these is familiar to many people from what's widely reported, which I call the disease model, which is only something's wrong with it. You go to the doctor and you expect them to fix it for you, which completely overlooks the reality that these chemicals evolved to reward you with a good feeling when you meet a survival need. But there's four different ones because they each have a very different, very specific function. And these functions are nothing like what you're telling yourself in words when you have these lofty things about oh, well, I think to be happy, we have to serve others. And like, this is what everybody is indoctrinated mm -hmm. to think that happiness equals serving others. That's fine, you know, but this is not true. And the animal studies that purport to show that 
are very biased. I mean, that's a, like a really long thing. And, and I was in academia for 25 years. But um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll first tell you the science and then you'll you'll see. Okay. Dopamine is the chemical that turns on when you see a way to meet a need. So if you imagine a monkey, it eats a piece of fruit and then it rests and digests. And then after a few hours, it's hungry again. So hunger is an unhappy chemical that says, ouch, I have a need that must be met. And that motivates the monkey to do something to meet the need. So it looks around and when it sees a piece of fruit that it can get, its dopamine turns on and that's a good feeling. So dopamine makes us feel good about the steps toward meeting our needs. Another example that I talk about a lot in my work is if you're a lion and you're looking for a gazelle that you could catch, the lion can't run after every gazelle because then it would starve to death because it would just keep missing. So it has to be very cautious about finding the gazelle it can catch. And then it's dopamine surges that releases its reserve tank of energy and it goes for it. So I tell people whether you're deciding like which job to, to apply for or which stranger across a crowded room that you're going to flirt with, we make decisions about where to invest our energy. And when we see a prospect that gives us the expectation of reward that releases dopamine. You just get a little bit for a short time and then you have to keep getting closer to the reward or to get more rewards to get more dopamine. So it is not designed to be on all the time. So when people write to me and say, my doctor tells me I have like inadequate dopamine, it's like, well, the doctor can't tell you maybe you're taking inadequate steps toward rewards because (laughs) the whole medical model today is so focused on it's not your fault. Let me just fix you. And so people need to know this. It's kind of funny when you phrase it that way. It's like silly how we're wired to think our needs are based on these survival modes. I didn't mean to cut you off. I know you still have a few more of these happy chemicals to discuss. Sure. Well, I don't want to just lecture. So I'll do one at a time, but happy to hear from you. Yeah. So the next happy chemical, oxytocin. Some people haven't heard of this and other people are in the oxytocin fan club because it's called the love hormone. And it is the chemical that triggers herd behavior in animals. It's the feeling that humans call trust. So when I have the safety of social support, then my brain rewards me with a good feeling of oxytocin. And that motivates me to seek the safety of social support. Now, on the one hand, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, of course, everybody wants social support, but it's so unfair. We don't get support. And that's that whole view of blaming others. But in the animal world, animals stick with herds and their herds have lots of conflict. And often, you know, an animal may be the last one to be fed or they're They may be poked by the horns of others, or they may be left out of mating opportunity. Animals are very competitive, but if they leave the herd, they get eaten by a predator. So common enemies motivate animals to seek oxytocin and safety in numbers. And when they distance themselves from the herd, their oxytocin falls and they go back to the herd. So this is the feeling many people know that we long for independence, we're tired of, of having other people tell us what to do. But then when our on, we're on our own, your mammal brain says, yikes, something's wrong. I'm not safe. I'm not safe. 
or even when you're with a group, but you feel like the group doesn't really have your back. We want the protection of others, but we don't want to admit it. So we want to make it sound like we're the good guys and we're rescuing others. But really what animals are looking for is a protection of others. And the bottom line is that when a gazelle goes to the herd, it pushes its way to the center of the herd where it will be safer and another gazelle will get eaten. And we don't like this when it happens to us. And yet we are probably doing plenty of it ourselves and <laughs> we need to understand it so we can sort of relax about it instead of always being angry about yeah, it. Yeah, especially the entrepreneurs listening that are out there that um, go the different <laughs> path than most people. I'm sure that that chemical in their brain, you know, is constantly trying to fire to seek approval when they're independent and autonomous. So it's kind of a uh, catch-22 in a way. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So let me move on to serotonin. So this is very complicated. Well, every one of these chemicals is associated with a drug of abuse. And so serotonin is associated with antidepressants, which I won't call that a drug of abuse, but let's say an, an, an artificial source. Dopamine is cocaine and oxytocin is in ecstasy and is also in sex and touching. Now, serotonin, when we hear a lot about it in regard to depression, no one acknowledges the monkey studies that were done almost 40 years ago. Now, for millennia, humans have lived alongside animals and observed that animals are very competitive and the individuals that are, let's just say, pushier for the interests of time, mm -hmm. they end up spreading their genes more successfully. And so in the human world, we need to restrain that urge to just push. So when you're two years old and you want another kid's toy, you learn that that's not the way to get rewards. You learn some self-restraint and you learn better ways to get rewards. But that core impulse to get rewards and to be, it's to be special, to have pride. So in the animal world, if you always think, that you're weaker than the individual next to you, you will not reach for the banana or the mating opportunity, and then your genes will die out. So natural selection built a brain that rewards you with a good feeling when you say, I got it going on. I have the strength to take that step and to reach for that banana or that mating opportunity in the context of other individuals. And the way you make that decision is by comparing yourself to others and this is why we constantly drive ourselves crazy comparing ourselves to others. That's so funny you, you say that about the toys. My dad tells me the story about me when I was little. I would always watch. I was an observer. So instead of all the other kids would just go right after the toy that they wanted. And I would always kind of be a little bit one step removed looking at everyone. And then mm -hmm. when a kid was done playing with his or her toy, I'd go over and seek out that toy after he was done playing with it. Does that mean I have less serotonin than others? Or does that attribute it to the chemicals? Or is that more of a personality trait? Good question. So I don't really agree with this whole one person has less than others. And I don't really agree with this whole personality trait thing. So the bottom line, as I said, we're all born with billions of neurons, but very few connections between them. So by the time you were two, you had already made plenty of connections. So the way we make our connections is from positive experiences, from rewards, and from negative experiences, from pain. So 
any pain that you experience. So the classic example, I don't know about your family, but I'll tell you, my husband had an older brother who would bite him, kick him. And by the time my husband was two, he learned like nothing is worth getting bitten and kicked. I'll (laughs) wait until, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know where you were in the birth order or, Mm -hmm. you know. And so when you have pain, your brain prioritizes that over rewards because a threat can kill you faster than going without rewards can kill you. So that's why our brain prioritizes anything that hurt you in the past. Yeah, that's so fascinating. So let's talk about a really common feeling that some people have anxiety. Let's just put it out there. Let's get a real life scenario going when it comes to practical everyday interactions when it comes to anxiety. So you're saying that you can, if you're aware of these chemicals, you can build a new safety circuit to divert your electricity in a moment of anxiety. I used to suffer really bad from anxiety and Mm. I worked really hard over the years to do this. I didn't necessarily know I was diverting my electricity, but I did this. It's complex. There's a lot of things going on. So how can you explain to listeners how to recircuit your brain if you experience a lot of anxiety? Sure. I'll give you a little theory and a little practical example. Anxiety is just a circuit in your brain that says, something bad is going to happen. And you're not saying it to yourself in words because this mammal brain doesn't need words. It's just circuits built from past pain. And so if you think of a gazelle who, let's say, got attacked by a lion the last time it went to a waterhole. So now when it goes to that same spot, it has a circuit that says, oh, be careful, Something. this is where something bad can happen. So you could see how effective it is for our brain to learn that. But in social situations, the biggest circuits are made from pain. So we are constantly, it's like your lens is constantly looking for every bad thing that ever happened to you. Like all the worst moments in your life, That's what your brain's focusing on unless you go out of your way to build a new circuit and you have to do it very intentionally. And instead of saying there's something wrong with me, it's just to say, you know what? Everybody has to do this. If I didn't do it yesterday, I can do it today. And it takes a lot of repetition. Now, I'll give you my example. So um, I call it like a social hangover. When I was a college professor, I was getting paid to talk. And I had had so many careers before that. So I knew like, wow, this is a really good deal. So I could talk, but then I would get a bad feeling afterward. Or like Mm -hmm. you go to a party and then you wake up the next morning with a bad feeling. Or like the classic example is like Thanksgiving dinner and you're on your way home from Thanksgiving dinner and you have like bad feeling like, oh my God, somebody's going to be mad at me. Or the worst example is like at work, there's going to be repercussions. So we're constantly anticipating the negative feedback from others in the template that fits whatever negative feedback you got in your individual past experience. So in very gross general terms, because now you're an adult, so it's just a general pattern. Mm -hmm. So there are some things that if you criticize me about, I don't care because I just never built a pattern to obsess over that thing. But then if you say 
some other thing, like the slightest thing can get me going. Mm -hmm. So then I had to recognize that and build a new pattern. And I'll give you an interesting example. I took early retirement, I started self-publishing, and then I tried to promote my writing, which is so not what I had spent my life. Like the idea of promoting to academics is very, very hard. And so everyone tells you to look at what other people have done. And other people are, as you know, it's like showing off, right? Yeah. And the classic thing that they're all saying is the, the best-selling author of blah, blah, blah. I didn't want to call myself best-selling author if I was not. And maybe if I dug down into some really deep, narrow definition of best-selling, I could find it and say it. And that's basically what people do. But I just decided... I'm just not going to worry about that, you know? And so when you were reading my bio and you said, oh, I could go on and on. This is so good. And my thought was, really? You don't think it's it's crap because I don't have a bestseller? Oh, my God. (laughs) We're our own worst enemies. It's insane. Like I'm blown away by your bio, but it's so interesting how we're always just not thinking highly of our own selves. At least I have learned to laugh about it and to not have like a neurochemical surge about it. It really goes to show that you can transcend your thoughts. And I think as you were explaining kind of how to get out of those bad feelings that you have after Thanksgiving or after you give a big talk, it's not about focusing on yesterday or the past. And, And meditation has helped me personally get out of my own head and realize that to try to just live in the moment more. That is a lot about rewiring your brain and really focusing on the present. How important is living in the moment to getting out of your head and all the chemicals that need to fire in order for you to be happy? I don't use the concept of living in the moment because my view is like, for example, meditation is a way that when your electricity is effortlessly flowing through your old circuits, meditation can help you stop that flow or be aware of that flow. But in order to redirect the flow, you need to build a new circuit. And all these things don't help you do that. I'm not like a a fan of a lot of the things that are suggested, but I want to criticize them. So I'll just tell you what I believe in. The simplest, simplest example is when a person wants to smoke and they have an urge for cigarette And if they tell themselves, I shouldn't smoke, that doesn't work. If they tell themselves, I might die, then they just get more upset. So what a person needs to do is to build an alternative circuit that says, the next time I need to smoke, what am I going to do? Well, what is a five-minute cigarette? It's like you give yourself a break to have fun for five minutes and breathe deep. So what if a person is prepared with a comedy recording And they take a walk and deep breaths and listen to comedy for five minutes and with headphones. And then if you do that for a while, you so look forward to that, that the next time you feel bad, you're like, wow, I have this great thing I can do. And I don't even have to worry about the long-term consequences. And you just almost like you forget the old thing because you have another way of rewarding yourself. So I think people need to learn new ways to healthy ways to reward themselves rather than all of this self-flagellation of of all of this self-denial and your ego is bad and you're bad and society is bad. 
Mm. So that's my opinion. Yeah, I like that. It's definitely more science based, which is your core strength. And it's fascinating because you really study political correctness and how our lens is filtered through a certain reality of gatekeepers. And I came across another one of your books that caught my eye, How I Escaped Political Correctness and You Can Too. This goes back to somewhat what we were discussing earlier about how our state of mind or political correctness stimulates our reward chemicals in primal ways, using that same chemical rewiring and gearing it towards political conversations. You write that you ripped off the PC goggles and looked at the world without them. And you've stopped filtering reality through the lens built by these gatekeepers of political correctness. And you learn to focus on the pleasure of your own choices instead of on solidarity with suffering. Can you speak to this a little bit? I find this fascinating. Oh, thank you so much. Well, um, since the, the book is 200 pages long, so what can I say? So let's start with the science. It's natural to seek rewards. And if you're in a culture that says, self-interest is evil, wanting rewards is evil, so you can only seek rewards for others. So nobody wants to be evil. So everybody says, oh, well, I'm only seeking rewards in the name of others. But then sometimes, often, they end up bitter. And so I'm just advocating not the other extreme. The other extremes where many people think, oh, yes, I'm going to be a superstar. I'm going to be a rock star. I don't advocate that either because you just end up frustrated. So the idea is to create small goals that you could actually achieve and then constantly take steps toward them. And to be honest about your own impulses instead of projecting your impulses onto some political ideology. Now, serotonin, this is the thing about moral superiority, that we're constantly comparing ourselves to others because that's what mammals do. And the sad thing is that when you feel like you're in the one-up position, you get a little bit of serotonin, it feels great, and then the serotonin is gone in a few minutes. That's how our brain is designed to work because a little monkey has to constantly compete for that piece of fruit and who's on that branch of that tree and who's getting the mating opportunity. Animals are constantly competitive. So they have to constantly assert themselves and serotonin is a reward for that. And again, I'm not saying we should go crazy and just be pushy, but to take responsibility for your own serotonin by saying, you know what, I'm looking for ways to to enjoy the one-up position. And it's so hard to do. And it's so disappointing when that good feeling ends. And so a cheap shot is to just use political correctness to constantly feel superior to people who are less politically correct than you. Mm. So now let's move on to oxytocin. So if you disagree with the politically correct agenda in the slightest, you will be shunned from the herd and your mammal brain tells you that you're going to be eaten alive by a predator, which is why people are so fearful and which is why I have to admit that I was free to do this only because I'm retired. So <laughs> I, I'm not really attacking other people because I understand how horrible it is to feel like your survival is threatened if you say 
anything that the PC police don't like. And yeah, you're so not a part book, of the herd anymore, so you can do what you want. <laughs> yes, exactly. And you can't get mating opportunity. Let's be frank about that. <laughs> right? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so the book has a chapter on how to feel safe without political correctness, how to have friends without political correctness, and how to have a career without political correctness. Um, and I have to say that it, there aren't like simple answers where I could say, oh, yes, just fight. Because we all know that, you know, if you fight, you can be angry all the time and you can create illusions, but that's not going to meet your mammalian needs. So you real your needs are real. So my solution is always small steps because you only get a small bit of happy chemical, soon it's gone, and then you have to take another step. So it's your confidence in your own steps. And that's also the solution to anxiety, is your mammal brain needs to have confidence in your own steps. I have a new book coming out in the spring called Tame Your Anxiety. And so I start with the example of a gazelle is always threatened by predators every moment of its life. So how come gazelles don't have anxiety? Mm. You know, everybody tries to think that the state of nature is happier, but it's not. So what calms a gazelle is that it trusts its own steps because it has successfully run from predators before. So it trusts its own ability to run from predators. So it's that trusting your own ability to do that. One more thing very quickly. It's funny. My fast, easy solution, I say, is when people start talking political correctness, I go to the bathroom. (laughs) By the time I'm back from the bathroom, then I see whether the conversation is still there or not. Mm -hmm. And that helps to protect me from overreacting. And, And sometimes it helps people find another topic of conversation. Definitely. That's great advice. Wow. I like that. It's so simple too. As you're explaining this, it really goes back to this concept of agreeableness, which as an entrepreneur, as a rebel, I never really knew I had this level of, I guess I want to call it like disagreeableness. I kind of didn't always want to follow the herd. There was always some resistance to being a part of that herd mentality. It's fascinating that there are like chemicals and stuff that dictate kind of our lens on reality. Pathways really give the meaning to the world around you. So when you're talking about confidence, it's like, okay, I'm testing my reality. Does this work for me? Yes, I'll keep going. I'm not going to get eaten. So it's interesting, like the baby steps that we need to take in order to get the confidence that we need to change our reality. Yes, yes, yes. What saddens me is like all these psychology professors who are teaching all these people just at high school that agreeableness is the most important thing. Like what? (laughs) It's, It's just nuts. So all I can say is pendulum swings back and forth, you know, and at one period of time, People are too groupy and they go for more independence and maybe they're, but what I say in every one of my books, a gazelle is making this choice in every minute. If it steps closer to the herd, it's going to have more conflict over a small patch of grass. If it steps away from the herd, it's going to have more predator threat. So there are trade-offs and it's making that decision in every minute. And I can just say to myself, you know what, if an ungulate can make this decision, I can too. Yeah, it's just going right back to the basics, animals. 
really good advice. So I've been studying a lot about reality and how this concept, you know, in the spiritual circus, so to speak, of you create your own reality. And then I stumbled on this quote by William James. He's an American philosopher, and I'm yeah. actually currently reading his book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, okay. which is fascinating. So he says, the greatest revolution of our generation is the discovery that human beings, by changing their inner attitudes of their minds, can change the outer aspects of their lives. Really, this knowledge is in us, and it's found in all religions and spiritual teachings, if you dig deep enough, that there's this truth. It's the energy of our thoughts and feelings and beliefs that create our external experiences. Do you agree that you create your reality or can you help us better understand this concept from a uh, brain wiring perspective? Okay. It's a very fine edge here. First, I'll say in relation to William James, but you know that feeling where when you're thinking of somebody and then they call you or often when I think, Oh, so-and-so never got back to me. And then the next time I check my email, I had already gotten a reply from them when I was worrying about it. Synchronicity. And yeah, yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah. Now, If I told myself, oh, by thinking of that person, I caused them to contact me. So by telling myself, oh, I caused that person to call me by thinking of them, I don't believe that's true. Although I do believe that it feels good to believe that. So I understand why so many people believe that. But I believe the the weaker version, which is that When I believe in my own power, I take the steps, whereas people who believe that they're powerless don't take the steps. So, for example, if you think of why didn't so-and-so call me, maybe if I think of them a few times and then if they don't call me, I might call them. But if you're always just relying on ESP, then maybe (laughs) you won't reach out to people. Now, William James, I really like him more than, and and for people who don't know, he lived 100 years ago. Um, I like him more than any philosopher. I can't believe it. However, I don't agree with everything he said. So let's just say that he lived at the time when seances were popular and people would get together and try to contact the dead. And he believed in that. And I'll just, for the interest of time, I'll just say, I don't believe in that. And I think partly he was a product of his time and of wishful thinking. And also, do you know how lucky we are that we're not surrounded by dead people? Thomas Jefferson, six of his children died and his wife died. The average person, they saw siblings die in front of them in bed at home. They were so surrounded by death that I truly um, sympathize with their urge to contact the dead. And yet I don't believe in it. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. I think it is a product of the time and, and his current reality back in the day. But at the same time, I do really like his work. It's fascinating. He's kind of one of the first philosophers that I'm aware of that is studying how our minds explore religion and feelings and act on those experiences. So 
I will uh, post a link to his book in uh, the show notes because I'm currently in the process of reading it and it is aligned with our conversation too. And he had a few books. I can't remember the, the, the most basic one, the most introductory one. I can't remember what that is. The Principles of Psychology? That's it. Principles of Psychology. Oh, yeah. That's it. Okay. Yeah. And just so people know that this was like in 1910 when there was very little research. Although what I write in my blog, I've started writing a history of psychology. So the guy who discovered fight or flight, the guy who discovered synapses, that was a good hundred years ago. Yeah, but it's still so relevant today. That's the fascinating thing. Pretty prescient today to kind of go back in time. Um, I think because we're all kind of searching for more meaning with the technology at our fingertips. We're all trying to make sense of it all. So, you know, when we explore philosophers and how they thought back in the day before technology, it's uplifting. It's inspirational. You know, you can go in so many different directions with it. Yes. Well, it's also before political correctness, I might add. So anything coming out of academic psychology today is forced into the template that whatever your problem is, it's society's fault. And once you give people that message and you raise children with that message, then we only look for explanations that we can blame on society and we don't look for our power as much as we might. Absolutely. And and it goes back to confidence and it goes back to having authority over our destiny. So I think it's all important work. You do such a good job in the many books that you've written explaining all of these different chemicals in our brain. I'm so excited about your upcoming book. It's called Tame Your Anxiety. Where can we go to learn more about you and your future book and all of the work that you're bringing into the world? Thanks. Um, my website is innermammalinstitute.org, innermammalinstitute.org. There's lots and lots of resources. Every single type of information that you like, you'll find there. And if people want to follow you on social media, where can we go to learn more? All the buttons are at my website, innermammalinstitute.org. And you'll also get a prompt to opt in for my five-day happy chemical jumpstart, which is basically one email on each of the chemicals that is a simple introduction. Awesome. Dr. Loretta Bruning, thank you so much for joining me on the show. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. You made it to the end of the podcast. This means the world to me, and I hope you enjoyed it. Feel free to hop on over to my podcast website, artofhumanity.io, for show notes or past interviews. Or you can message me on social media. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. My name is Jessica Ann, and my handle starts with an I. It's at I-T-S-J-E-S-S-I-C-A-N-N. I'd love to hear from you and learn more about what you've learned from this episode, and I'll be sure to get in touch with you. If you really love this podcast, I'd highly appreciate it if you went on iTunes right now and left a review. It helps way more than you know. Let's get the Art of Humanity movement going. Thank you for listening. Until the next episode, evolve your business with the Art of Humanity. Listen, explore, evolve. I'm Jessica Ann.